Before we get into talking with our guest today, I want to tell you all a story. Over the multiple episodes we've done of Talk on Tech, you've heard from former students, people who are working in industry, even the professors at Mount West about the stories that got them where they are. Most of those stories, I'd say almost 100% of them, have always had a positive tone to them. But we all know in a person's life that we have both trials and tribulations that end up in our favor and don't always so much. And today I want to tell you a story about myself. Right out of high school, I ended up going to Marsh University. And if you listened to the first episode of the podcast, you heard that I went to Marsh University. I kind of felt a little aimless. I couldn't find my place. I really wanted to work on computers. So I happened to find this college that was built into Marsh University that was the Community and Technical College, which at the time was Marshall Community and Technical College. While I took my classes there, I took a lot of programming classes. I had a Visual Basic class to Rhonda Scrag. I had an HTML class and a JavaScript class to Kim Priest. I had most of the Cisco classes to Randy Jones, and I ended up being in the first group of Microsoft MCSE students with Scott Nicholas taking both his NT4 and then coming back and taking his 2000 certification classes. The point of my story is once I was getting near the end of my time at Marshall Community and Technical College, Kim Priest helped me get an offer of a work-study position, a place that I could go ahead and work up to 20 hours a week while I was still a student and also be getting some experience. And the work-study job was actually over in Dringo Library, which at the time was Marshall University's Information Technology Hub. That's where all of their computing services people worked. So it was on the fourth floor for a gentleman by the name of Brian Morgan, who at the time happened to be the interim CIT director. And CIT was the Center for Instructional Technology. So I took the position. I'm not really sure what Kim had told Brian about me, but I took the position. I started working for Brian, and I was very headstrong. I was sure of myself. You know, I was a person who had just taken all these Cisco classes and these HTML classes and these JavaScript classes. And occasionally, Brian would ask me to work on a particular project, and if I didn't know something on the project, I wasn't going to ask. I wasn't going to say, I don't know. I was, I was going to try to figure it out on my own. That would be so embarrassing to say, I don't know. Could you help me out with this? I haven't learned this yet. But at the time, I hadn't learned to swallow my pride and understand that an IT guy can't know everything. At the time, Marshall University was adopting a program called Banner which Banner is a gigantic database with a web front end. It's very, very complex. And to think back now, knowing what I actually knew then, because at the time, I didn't know what I didn't know. But now, looking back, knowing what little I knew, and knowing that Brian was tasking me with looking at other colleges and looking at their sites and trying to figure out how we can make ours work, was light years away from what I knew. It was truly trying to teach chimps how to do Shakespeare. But did I say anything? Was I metaphorically flailing in the deep end hauling for a lifeguard? No. I had it. I had it covered. On top of that, 
it was also around 2000, around the time of Napster. So let's just say I wasn't always doing my job. There might have been times that I was looking for certain music, which at all times was illegal. There was no iTunes back then. There was no legal way to get your MP3s. So once again, I didn't see anything wrong with it. I was oblivious. All of this is to say that I would say maybe a month, maybe a month and a half into my work study time there, I came in one day and noticed that my key card did not work. I thought something was wrong. I went in through the regular way and Brian was there and um, and then he told me that the reason I couldn't get into the door and the reason I couldn't log on to the computer was because I was being fired. Now, I was completely dumbstruck. Someone had basically hit me in the chest with a bat. All of the air had left my stomach. And I took it pretty badly. Um, I mean, I didn't like, you know, throw a temper tantrum or anything. Um, I cried a little bit. It was the first job I'd ever been fired from. I'm sure that was very, very hard for Brian. And, and we'll talk to him today about, you know, what it was like to be a manager, what it was like to have to fire people, what it was like to hire people, that type of thing. But in an experience where you get fired, there's really two possible ways that can turn out. You can become very jaded. You can blame the person who fired you. You can say basically, ah, oh, they were out to get me. You know, I was doing everything right. Or, you know, you might be able to do some self-reflection and actually see in certain situations that some of it was brought on on yourself. And so I want to point out a couple issues that I had because I think in every experience you have, whether it's a failure or it's a success, you should learn something from that. And so I looked at that situation and I did try to learn some things from it so that it was a worthwhile situation. Obviously, I didn't like the end result, but I wanted to make sure that everything I did in life I actually could learn something from it. So first thing, you need to at least have some sort of grasp on the fact that you need to know what you don't know. When I started working in that position, Brian may have very well been expecting me to have skills that a four-year computer science student might have. Was that unrealistic for him to expect? I don't know, because you know what? I didn't tell him otherwise. I didn't say, hey, Brian, I'm a two-year student. I haven't learned that. I haven't learned what PHP is yet, because I would later. I didn't speak up. I just played it cool, acted like, of course, I know how to do this. And that was on me. I needed to communicate better. So what I constantly tell my students is be aware you're going to have some humbling experiences when you go out into the workforce. And you need to not try to do the hot shot IT guy thing of walking in and going, I got this, and being all arrogant about stuff. Because believe me, you're going to run into hundreds of humbling experiences in your life. You are going to learn there's a lot you don't know. And you need to learn to be okay with that. I was not okay with that at the time. So I didn't say anything to Brian because I thought that was a failing on my part. It wouldn't have been. I could have communicated to him. He could have been like, oh, okay. He might have even taught me how to do it. It would have been great. I would have learned something. But I was too prideful. 
Secondly, I was getting paid to do that work study. I should not have been downloading MP3s or ROMs or whatever I was doing. I was getting paid to do a job, and I was doing illegal stuff at that point. So, you know, luckily, I've reflected on that, and I have not done that now, but I could have gotten in a lot more trouble than simply being fired. So, you need to keep in mind, when you are working on the clock, you are working for somebody, and you should not be wasting their time especially doing illegal activities. That's definitely grounds for being fired. And so if you get fired for downloading music or torrents, that type of thing in this day and age, you really should not be surprised you got fired. Finally, if at all possible, if you can get over the initial shock and if you can contact that person again in a polite way, you really should contact them and ask them, kind of like for an exit interview, what was I doing right? What was I doing wrong? Because you really should learn from a mistake like that. Learn from being fired. And I do get that some people are going to say, look, my boss had it out for me. And I'm sure there's some of those situations. Not 100% of firing go all the same way. But in my case... There is so much I could have learned if I'd only asked, and I didn't ask. But later upon reflection, luckily, I did do some soul searching. I did learn what I just told you. The fact that it was a humbling experience, but I quickly learned I didn't know everything. And if you want to compete in this world and you want to keep your job, it's okay to say every once in a while, I need help. I don't know how to do this. And I made sure to take that lesson, as well as a lesson of actually doing your job while you're on the clock and not be doing possibly unethical things or not be doing things that can make the company look bad, that type of thing. I made sure to take those with me in my future endeavors. And, you know, I'm pretty happy to say I haven't been fired since. So if it happens to you, I hope you can get something out of it by trying to look back analyze it, and learn from it. Because I know I certainly did. And when I look back, I laugh at the person that was. I laugh at that person who was so headstrong, arrogant in their knowledge, and who was just blatantly doing unethical things at work. That was a boy. And now I like to think that I'm actually a man, and I'm doing bigger and better things, knowing the lessons I learned Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Talk on Tech. I'm Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. And we're here today again with Brian Morgan. You were the, the manager, as it were, the interim director of the Center for Instructional Technology. And, and I'm sure I'm not the only story of a, of a student who came through there bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, had no clue what was going on, and, and quickly got slapped and learned, oh crap, this is how it's supposed to really work. So I guess in this particular episode, I'm wondering from managerial side, are there any, any stories you've learned or, or things you've managed to glean that could, that could help people, especially if they ever find themselves in a management situation or even, even advice that you would have given me before I walked in the door that day about being a worker for a manager from the manager's perspective? Yeah, don't do it. No. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what. 
when I first started working and everything else, I never, never thought I'd ever be you know, a manager or anything else. I was happy doing programming, happy doing stuff and helping other people. Watched my mom and dad grow up as teachers. And I thought, you know what, that'd be kind of cool too. And that's the direction I thought I would go in my life. About a year or so after being hired as the instructional technologist full-time on campus, they decided to create the Center for Instructional Technology. And I'll never forget talking to my boss, it was Jan Fox, and said, hey, how does one become the director for the Center for Instructional Technology? And she sent me away to talk to Dr. Dennis Prisk, who was her boss at the time. This was right after Marshall had merged with the West Virginia Graduate College and became Marshall University Graduate College. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, that position needs a master's degree. And I thought, well, there goes that. And he said, well, said uh, you can start working on one now. And so I did. I re-enrolled in graduate school like weeks after I graduated. And uh, when you'd work for me, that's why I was the interim director. I didn't have my master's. And uh, so I was placed in that role until they advertised for the position full time. But it was, it was very interesting that in the beginning, I was, I was terrified. I mean, you know, playing sports was looked up to kind of as a leader uh, in high school because of, you know, one, my dad was a baseball coach and I was on a baseball team, so I had to be a natural leader there. But that's pretty much all the management experience I'd ever had. Right. I'd, otherwise, I'd just worked for people. And so it was a lot of on-the-job training <laughs> for me, uh, for everybody else. And, um, you know, one the biggest piece of advice I can give to anybody wanting to go into management is you're not going to know – what to do in every situation right off and um, based on that don't snap to decisions that you might otherwise regret later and uh, no matter what I did you know I tried to to take everything into account get get all the information I could from any situation and then make a decision have I been happy with every single decision I've ever made as a manager no Uh, have I made some good decisions yes uh, have I made some bad decisions? Yes. I mean, I've, I'll admit it. Uh, not everything I've done has been good. And uh, But uh, its I'll tell you what, managing is by far harder than being the person out in the field programming. Uh, because one, to be a good manager, you have to know the trade, whatever your, whatever your job is. You have to know your employees. You have to know what makes them tick, what drives them. What stalls them? Uh, you know, if you're if somebody kind of backs away in a corner when you yell at them, you don't sit there and berate them all day. They're not going to get anything done for you. And so you also have to be a good problem solver. Uh, ultimately, they're going to come to you. Hey, how do how would you do this? And you got to have the experience and the knowledge to either find them the answer, tell them the answer, or get them the resources they need to do the job. And so. You know, it's over the years after being director for Center for Instructional Technology, I went back to being just, hey, regular faculty. And I thought, okay, that's not bad. But in in a sense, you all know this, that being a faculty member is a little bit of management, too. You have to have classroom management, manage the students, push them to go here, push them to go there. And so, you know, I thought, okay, it's a little bit of management. But then uh, five years ago, the opportunity came open when my department chair, Dr. Mike Little, retired he asked if I'd be interested, and at the time I'm thinking, I don't know. I really am not sure if I want to do this. But then, you know, he let me in his last year kind of follow him around, see what he did as a chair and everything else. I thought, yeah, it's it's management. And so it was part of my experience as director for a Center for Instructional Technology that allowed me to step in the role of being a department chair right? and uh, to know what I was doing. But then, grossly mistaken, I thought, ha, I can do this. This is easy. It, department chair in academic institutions is actually harder than 
I ever yeah. thought it would be. My neighbor told me, called me a fool. She's the chair of dietetics, Kelly Williams, and uh, she goes, you're a fool for wanting to do this. And I thought, nah, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. Well, now I know why she was saying that, <laughs> because you have to manage, in my case, it was 23 different personalities, 23 faculty. You sure. had to handle every student complaint. You had to to be unbiased. You had to to you know listen, be a great listener, great decision maker, and then you had to do it quickly. And so... It was a lot of pressure, and you know some of the stuff I made knee-jerk reactions on some things that I regret, but it all comes back down to me learning from the beginning. Be a good listener. Get every side of the story you can, and then work to make the best sound judgment in whatever situation it is that you can. The great thing about being in a classroom, I mean, I don't know if it's a great thing, but it's, it's, it's a semi-funny thing that you are managing all these personalities, and you can try so hard to, to make sure that you figure out the student's learning style and you can you can basically, not to sound childish, but to nurture them in the way mm-hmm. that needs to be nurtured so that they're going to learn the information and want to be there to learn it because you want to better their lives. But also, sometimes if you have absolutely abysmal cases, those students might decide, this is not for me and leave. That that doesn't always happen to your faculty. <laughs> no, no, and and one thing you have to realize is if they do, it's not always your fault. Right. Um, I mean, I, I've in the beginning, I took it really hard when students would drop a class. You got to realize that it's not always you. Maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe they're a bad situation in life. Maybe they just didn't really want to do this major. Maybe they couldn't do it. Or you know, like you mentioned before, you didn't want to ask for help in the beginning. Maybe right. they didn't want to ask for help. Then they fell too far behind yeah. when they really needed your help. And so as much as you can sit there and try, right. there are some cases that it's not going to work, but you can't hold every one of those. Uh, you can't think that every single one of those are personally your fault. Right. Well, But I'm also saying that on the chair side of the fence, those people who were the potential students who leave and go this is not what i want that doesn't quite happen nearly as often on on the faculty side so when you do have one that's a a tough nut to crack they're typically there for a while yeah faculty who who come to the university you know i've got some who've been here for 20 30 years i've got some who come here quickly and leave and um you know once somebody's here for 15 20 years and and you're younger than them and you become their chair it's kind of hard, I mean, because they have expectations. They have been here. They've gone through more chairs than I have been teaching here. I mean, sure. as a matter of fact, one of my faculty now was one of my faculty as an undergrad. Yeah. And so, you know, when I became his chair, I'm thinking, hey, this is really weird and, and didn't know what the expectations would be. You know, things can be hard at times. I mean, it, it, you know, everybody's personality, they, they see a chair uh, as being their leader, et cetera, and a lot of faculty will have their personal goals in, you know, they want their personal goals taken care of. Well, one person's personal goals may not be the goals of the department. And if I cater to every single personal goal, then we wouldn't have enough money to run the department, et cetera. So it's, it is tough. And, you know, faculty are looking for livelihoods to, to be able to make it in life. And sure. uh, they're not going to just, if you don't do one thing for them, they're not just going to leave. They're going to, they're going to push and push and push for their personal goals. Right. And that's what I found is, is kind of tough is, is trying to balance, balance, you know, take the budget that we get and balance how I'm going to spend it out to try to get people to, you know, try to get their personal goals met. But at the same time, if you can, you can be a manager and you can, you know, make the faculty happy in the sense of being a department chair, 
and they're probably going to turn around and do a better job in the classroom. And so that's what I've, I've tried to find. But, you know, it's just ultimately it doesn't always happen. I mean, sure. we, we lost a faculty member in May who – they just didn't see eye to eye with me, and it, it wasn't that wasn't the reason they left. But even after they left, oh man, it's it's been rough. I mean, the emails are terrible and everything else. I'm thinking, wow. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, did I really do that bad? And, and it weighs on you. It eats at you. Right. And and in the sense that you know, it it may not have been me, and may have been other factors, but everybody knows that someone gets on you and blames you. You have to do that, you know, personal soul searching to see if it really was your fault and try to get better and kind of beat yourself up internally until you, until you realize that, hey, you know, move on. Sure. So, I mean, at this point, you've talked about how you were the interim director of Center for Instructional Technology and you've been a chair. Both of those are kind of managers already in a bigger company. Did you ever have any aspirations or strive out to kind of be your own manager, maybe from the programming standpoint or, mm. or even from the statistics standpoint, job-wise? Well, it's funny because never had aspirations of doing so, but then at the same time wanted to start my own company on the side. And so several years ago, I started doing web development for other people. What happened then was some of those clients said, hey, you know, you, you really could should consider doing this on your own. And so I really didn't know what to do. and But then I reached out and started doing some websites. And you essentially started my own company, became my own manager. And then actually took a bigger step out and uh, developed a piece of software that is now marketed, uh, well, I guess you could say globally. And so being CEO of a company, uh, even though I don't have any other employees, is, sure. is still a management position. Yeah, without formal education and everything else, I've, I've missed the boat on marketing, uh, and I know that's part of the management decision. I'm okay on the finances because, you know, they're, they're my finances. I'm definitely <laughs> going to keep track of them and pay the taxes and everything else. But, yeah, it's it's something that I never thought I would be doing, and every time I turn around, you know, whether it's managing the academic department here at Marshall, whether it's managing my company or managing my son's Little League team, it's, it's you know, it's management everywhere you go. Can you talk about how – how you came about or came into or came up with the idea of then making your own company and doing Burt slash sure. Bright. Because then maybe people out there who are like, I want to make this program, but they've never considered, mm-hmm. oh, I could sell this program, that type of thing. Maybe they might find inspiration from this. Yeah, a long time ago. Wow, this is funny. long time ago, back in 2004. <laughs> um, 2004, Dr. Stuart Thomas had been doing database reports for academic affairs. And unfortunately, Stuart had gotten sick, and Stuart couldn't do the reporting anymore. Dr. Donna Spindell was Stuart's wife, and she knew me through the Center for Instructional Technology and how much technology it did and, and how I taught technology and everything else. And so I guess when he started to get sick, she had talked to Dr. Sarah Demon, who was the provost at the time, and they talked to my dean to see if I could maybe help start writing some database reports for academic affairs. And so I agreed to do so and worked with Stuart, got a lot of his work, and he did uh, SPSS and SAS and everything was, was, you know, handwritten SQL. And so I found myself having to repeat the same stuff. And I thought, you know, there's got to be an easier way, kind of like, like the stats software. And so I started writing reports, and then um, I asked the university, I said, hey, you know, could we put these on the web, and that way they become self-servicing? No, we can't do that. I said, okay. 
So I kept thinking to myself, man, the way of the web. I mean, it's hard to believe that today anybody listening to this that's younger, a student probably thinks the web didn't wasn't very popular back then. Well, yeah, it was gaining popularity, but you know, not like it is today. But they also might have assumed not having knowledge that the data you put out there could have been proprietary. Oh, we yes. don't want people finding these scripts that'll tell them about our our schema of our database. You well, know, that's, and that's still some of the concern that sure. they don't want the data out there because it's student data. But I promised them. I said I will make it secure, and uh, they still don't want me to do it. They said, "Nope, can't do it." So I found myself, 2004, the ability to write reports out of the database, the ability to connect to the database only with like PLSQL or whatever, but not through the web. And I was determined. I was bound and determined to make it work. So I started scouring things, trying to find out how can I make this work? How can I make this connection through the web, through my server, onto the database to pull the data back? And one day I was cruising around, found something on the server. Um, the uh, Oracle database that Marshall used for the student information system actually resided on a Windows machine. And I found this folder that had been shared. And inside the folder was an error dump. So anytime anyone tried to log in incorrectly, it noted the username, not the password, don't worry, the username of who tried to log in and, you know, invalid password, illegal, blah, whatever. Well, just so happens when I was scouring that log that one day, I guess, the root admin tried to log in. And because there were several accounts, maybe just, you know, mistyped the password or whatever. But what else it had uh, with the login information was the SID or, you know, the security identifier that I needed to be able to connect via the web. So I used that identifier, used my own username and password, went to my website, tried it, and i like, oh, my Lord. It worked. So I went to Academic Affairs and said, guess what? I can now put some of this on the web. How? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about how. I said, I got to develop a security scheme. So I developed a scheme, and I started small. Started out by writing reports that show class list or current majors or whatever. And I'll never forget Academic Affairs, Dr. Fran Hensley, said, are you ready? I said, you, for what? Are you ready to roll this out? Sure. To who? We're going to let you present this to associate deans. So I went to an associate dean's meeting and presented what we called BERT, Banner Extraction Reporting Tool. And they loved it. So I gave them access. The very next summer, she goes, are you ready? <laughs> for what? And then it was time for the chairs. So I presented to the chairs. That's when IT found out what I was doing. It had been rolled out for almost two years. So I'm thinking this around 2006. And the question was, where is this residing? On a computer in my office. <laughs> what? <laughs> I ask for forgiveness, please. Are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> so uh, before I was able to roll it out to all the faculty, we had to move it to computing services to the secure data center in Drinko. And um, I had to, you know, thoroughly describe the security features. How am I managing security? Who gets access? Can Patrick Smith off the street access this database? No. Can Josh Joseph at home if he's a faculty member? Yes. What? But he's at home. He's securely logged in. So, you know, they put me behind the VPN. They put me behind logins, everything. And but, so, but at this point... My MU is already around. Exactly. The the, the self serve is already around. That yep. that 
that Mount West students are familiar with and definitely Marshall students. And the same thing was true there. Yep. But it's just... That was my argument. But because... And I think... And this is my thought. I never... Don't know for sure. But my thought was they trusted third-party systems written by other people who were big names in, in, or big players in the game more so than me who had never written an enterprise software system to integrate with those other third parties before. Sure. And so, and I, and I was fine with that because I knew what my system did and I, and I knew how it did it. And in my mind, I knew it was secure. And so anytime the university's changed the login structures, going from domain authentication to, to single sign on, I've, I've changed the product. And, um, and every time I changed the product, I would build it, the, uh, those changes in mind. Well, what about other universities? And so, every time I do something, that's what I think about making it as generic as possible to sell or you know for other places. And so far, I mean, three three schools have have bought the software, and so it's been nice to see other schools take it and use it. But at the same time, I wish I had a better marketing team. You know, the me myself and I, or my wife and I try to market it and we're just you know we both have full-time jobs and we have five kids between us and so that's the area of the management that i've failed on for this company is if i could market it better i think it would take off even even more so than it has but the nice story there that kind of leans back to even your stats program is you originally were wanting to write this program to make your life easier yes and then you managed to roll that into an actual product that could be sold yep and I would have to think, too, that if you have three universities that are using it, you probably are getting feedback from them on features you may not have even thought about yourself. I do. It's funny because it's not only f- stuff from those places that, that come back, but I'll get emails from faculty all the time and say, hey, have you ever thought of this? Oh, great idea, and I'll, and I'll do it. Or vice versa. It has so many features now that I was able to cover the product at New Faculty Orientation this year. Dr. Mindy Allinger and I had worked together to present, and she started presenting. And after she's done, I was like, can I show you something? And I showed her some other features that existed that she didn't know about. So it actually changed how she's going to do advising this year. And so it was stuff that was already there that not everybody knows about. And right. so that's – it like it opened my eyes to the sense of, like, holy cow, I mean, I've been writing this for 12 years, and there's so many features there that not everybody knows all of them. And but at the same time, when you don't hear complaints, then you know you've done something right. And 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 I checked the other day, and I think it, it averages um, almost forty thousand reports a month. Uh, it's that that still comes out of the system. Wow. Um, and so it's 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 I mean, that's just at Marshall, and so it's very popular. It's it's heavily used, but yeah, at the same time, yeah, people are still coming up with, hey, would this be neat in Bert, or could you do this in Bert? So I was like, yeah. So it, it's got a lot of now, after 12 years, it's not only used by faculty, staff, and administration, but there are now student components. Of course, schedule generator for students. It's got a syllabus repository. And all of those started because it was like, wouldn't it be neat if this were possible? Well, I was an advisor. Hey, let's pick your schedule. And everything was on paper. So let's do it on the computer. Or, hey, as a department chair, where is Dr. Such and Such's syllabus? I can't find it. Well, here it is on the syllabus repository. So, you know, student logs in. Who is my advisor? Well, go log into Bert and it'll tell, or Bright, I call it Bright now, Bright Student. It'll tell you who your advisor is because, you know, Miami wouldn't do that at that time. So I was usually on the forefront of, of adding features that didn't exist in other places. And that was why I was doing it. 
but it, it's also a very you know, rewarding to look back and kind of go through the logs and see just how many people are using it and just and, and in what ways. You know, with all software and you, that you're right, you have to be full fledged if you're ever going to sell it. It has full security, full auditing, and we've had to use the auditing features at Marshall to see who's done illegal activities. And so, it's been uh, it's been not rewarding to get those people in trouble, but it's been rewarding to see uh, or to look back and think, okay, if I hadn't thought about you know adding that in, then I could have been the one in trouble for developing a system that someone else used in an inappropriate way. Sure. Well, and I, I think even what you're saying there also lends itself to the fact that I'm sure both you and Josh teach that when you write a program, you need to be quality uh, tested, you mm-hmm. know, quality assurance, put it out there in the hands of the people that actually use it. Because in your case, yes, you actually did know quite a bit about what you wanted, but there's the potential that one of our students could be trying to write a program for a field they know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And if you get someone who understands that field to test it, they could say to you, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if it did dot, mm-hmm. dot, dot, and then that builds your features. And so you could have a nice collaboration with an actual knowledge expert oh, yeah. in the area. That's what's been great over the years is, is to go back and see how it's grown and how many features have been added. I get requests all the time. Could you add this? And if it sounds like it'd be popular for a lot of people, I'll say, sure. And then if it's not, I don't discard it. I'll just put it lower on the list. And then when spare time comes around, then, right. then I add it. And uh, but testing, oh, I can't talk enough about testing. It's and, and and by the way, tip for anybody doing software programming: it's hard to test your own software because you know what it's supposed to do, and you sometimes forget to test everything. And uh, I've done that many times. But being able and how I've been able to test Bert on my own was to use my records. And, and not everybody's going to be a programmer has data that they know about. But I was a student at the university. I have two degrees from the university and being faculty and advisor and everything else, I could always write a query and look at the results and say, yeah, that does have all my classes. Yeah, that does have all my grades. Yeah, it has my GPA, my grades, my my classes that I'm teaching. And I was always under the thought myself of like, well, if it works for me, it's going to work for everybody. And for the most case, that's what I found. But then rare cases would come about. I get a phone call and say, hey, no, Josh Joseph didn't get this grade in my class. What What do you mean you're showing Patrick Smith's grade for Josh? What happened? Oh, when you get, an, you know, if you do a grade change, I didn't know there's a later grade. And so, yeah, testing is so key that not knowing the system, you know, full thoroughness can get you. And it did at times. And But, you know, it's been a, a learning and growing experience at the same time. So you talked about how marketing wasn't necessarily your strong point. Can you talk about how if you are your own manager, how you find time to code. And then you kind of talked about how everything else to run the business, the mm-hmm. marketing, the calling people, the reaching out, possibly the going to uh, conferences or conventions. Like I know we saw you mm-hmm. at the Higher Education Technology Conference, how suddenly it's almost like you have to burn the candle at both ends. You do. That's been the hard part is to make your own business succeed, you got to have some capital. you got to have some money up front. I've been told by everybody this would succeed. Personally, I've been afraid to put any money up front. So go to a small conference, buy you know 500 brochures to send out some business cards is, is where I've gone. But I know what it would take to market the product. That's going to a banner conference, buying the table, setting up, promoting it. But that's thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so at some point in your life, if you're going to manage or develop and be an entrepreneur or whatever, you're going to have to determine where that risk comes. 
when you're going to make that risk, what you're going, what you're going to be willing to put into it, and to ensure the reward will outweigh the risks, you have to study the market. You have to know your know your facts, and you know that's where I took an accounting class and a, and a management class and an economics class as an undergrad, and I love the accounting. And I wish I'd have taken marketing. Wish I'd have taken more more accounting. I've told a lot of people that. My wife was a business major, and uh, she was a marketing major. So she's the one who's helped me come up with the brochures, make sure they look good, uh, have a plan, and and she's she's been fabulous. But it's me pulling the trigger with the finances is, is what's hurt me. But if you're going to be a good manager, there are times you have to take a risk. And I, I need to find that time that I can do that risk. Because right now you said burning candles at both ends, and that's true. I mean, you know, I never thought my job would be as busy as it is, and personal life is crazy. And so, you know, a little bit of everything going on, but at the same time, the company's just sitting. And I know in the back of my mind, it's going to take that risk. I have to pull the trigger as the boss to make that company succeed. So I'm, I'm assuming you would definitely suggest programming students who are going through a four-year path that it would be wise if they had electives to pick up a management class, a marketing class, an accounting class, so that you could have some at least some background knowledge as a student to know what you're doing, even finances-wise. Yeah, we, we require all the computer IT students to take a management class. Mm-hmm. Um, and anybody who's looking for an elective, I encourage them to take accounting 215 to the university. You know, a lot of people say they don't like math, but it doesn't matter if you ever want to do anything on your own, if you ever want to do anything outside of business. If you're going to handle money and it's not you just getting a paycheck, you need to take a class. But yeah, I would encourage people to do a minor. And if they could do a minor in business, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son, he's a freshman here. He wants to do something in sports management. He wants to do something, maybe potentially owning his own restaurant. And so we've gone back and forth, back and forth. And right now he is a management major and he's going to double major in sports management. And I told him that's pretty smart. That way, you know, you know you want to do something where you're the boss or whatever. He doesn't know if he wants to be a sports agent, own a restaurant. But I said, you can't do either one unless you have the background. And so, you know, I've encouraged him and and I've let him pick. But at the same time, when it came down to to one or the other, uh, I mentioned, hey, why don't you do both? And that's what he's doing so that he can choose Mm -hmm. something outside of a a narrow focus if he wanted to. Mm -hmm. I know that all three of us at this table, none of us have a single job. Like, Josh, (laughs) I know that that you help with uh, band camps and stuff. Yeah. We're both adjunct faculty at another another institution. Brian, you obviously are wearing many hats, but it also seems like all that comes from what we enjoy. Mm-hmm. You enjoy band, I enjoy teaching, do some consulting on the side, mm-hmm. your stats side of the fence, mm-hmm. even even further, I think, to um, doing some like martial graphic stuff and games like that. So isn't it right when we have like basketball games and stuff, you've actually taking the stats and even do all the graphics on the bottom of the screen yeah i did stats See, i started off in stats oh my gosh yeah 20 well, it's been 24 years now over the years now i hired the stats people and i'll work as what's called a font assist where i'll sit and i'll, I'll pull the knowledge out of the stats guys now like, hey how many yards past does this guy have and then i'll tell the guy running the graphics machines hey let's build this graphic let's let's build this make it look like this put this column here put this here you know put in this information then we try to sell it to the producer to say hey hey look at this look at this let's show this and so it's i've come kind of full circle as the person feeding the information to the person now taking the data and actually turn it into full screen graphics or what's called a lower third that shows you know 
you know, maybe Chase Litton is 15 of 24, but he's hit his last seven passes all across the middle. And so I'm, I'm extracting that information now from other people and actually turn it into to the real graphics. So it's kind of cool, you know, thinking back where I started, where I was the one like, he's seven for seven. And then somebody else had to say, okay, seven for seven, let's take it and do this. And now I'm the guy saying, hey, what what is he? And so we're building it. And, yeah, and so you've like way. moved yourself up as a natural progression. Yep. But I never want to go further. Uh, I was going to say, pretty soon you could be like the uh, the graphics director. Uh, no. No <laughs> graphics directors. I see how you know hectic. I tell you what, if anybody wants to be thankful for their job, you need to come sit in a TV truck during a production one time, see how stressful it is, how, how much yelling goes on, <laughs> and see how much ibuprofen and Tylenol get popped because I, every game I go home with a headache because it has to be so fast-paced and they don't want mistakes sure uh, and you should hear the producers and directors it's it's amazing listen I'm ready one take one ready to no no get that other shot get it and so they're not even watching the game right they're looking at what all the cameras are seeing and trying to get the next shot ready while something else is going on and then they've got us in their mind or their heads like hey look at you know look at font one it's good you want to take font one no not right now not right. and so it's crazy but yeah, you sh- you should be able to 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 partake in at one time and just to see <laughs> because also you know from the technology side you know one of these big HD trucks run, rolls in and everything's high def and all the equipment is digital and oh my lord it's phenomenal I mean hundreds of thousands of dollars of technology sit on one of these semis. Well, I know I had a former student I interviewed Jared Staten who worked for one of the local stations at one point. And I was like, how do you not have an ulcer trying to trying to record that 30 minute mm-hmm. six o'clock or 11 o'clock news broadcast since it's live? I can't imagine when you're doing a two hour game. I mean, yeah. you go home with four ulcers. <laughs> it, it, it's that's what I say. Some of the producers, I mean, they I tell you, I haven't worked for a producer who doesn't have at least one fit during a game. They'll say, oh, I don't yell. I don't yell. But there'll be something there's something goes wrong every game. Mm hmm. But the goal of the broadcast crew is for the home viewer sure. not to know what went wrong. You know, sometimes we pull it off, sometimes not. I mean, I've put up the wrong graphic before. Um, I've run the score bug, and I've put the points on the wrong side before in a live broadcast. So, yeah, and all I hear, score's wrong! Okay, my fault. And so... You know, it's funny if you watch a news broadcast or a sports broadcast, you're watching, you're like, oh, that's the wrong graphic. Yep. And, and then that's, that's, that's all you say, and you're like, I'm sure they're going to get the right one on there. But some someplace else, it's so high stress, someone's getting chewed out. Oh, oh. chewed out's not the word for it. Hey, when I watch a game that's wrong graphic, like, ah, you all did it too. <laughs> so it's it's kind of yeah, like a reassuring that, oh, okay, somebody else messed up too. It's not just me. Yeah. But yeah, someone, you better believe that there's someone getting chewed out from every which direction. I mean, maybe it's a producer in a truck. Maybe it's, you know, Command Central New York or Colorado or wherever we're broadcasting that day but oh my lord someone's getting reamed yeah i watched a news broadcast the other day speaking of that and they had ran the wrong video over the wrong live audio feed and it was completely they were talking about a certain set of people and all these different people they were interviewing and they were interviewing people on this video and it was all the wrong names all the wrong people and none of it matched up and it was i was just laughing and it lasted for a good five minutes before they figured oh, wow. out to flip it that it was the wrong video with the wrong audio overlaid. Usually it's it can hilarious. Be, usually it's pretty innocuous and you're like ha ha ha. Yeah. But, but I know sometimes it makes national news. Oh like yeah. <laughs> when uh, oh, 
Michael Duncan, Clark Michael Duncan had died, the guy from the Green Mile. When he died, I think they put up like Veen Rames picture. As yes, I and so know. that made that went viral because they're like, yeah. "Oh my gosh, look at these people." Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure most people take for granted what they actually see on TV mm-hmm. when they're watching it. They're just like, oh, this is nothing. And that's what you want. You don't want people to even notice it. You just yeah. want it to be natural. But yeah, someone's back there screaming, camera two, camera two, you know, get that graphic down. It's stressful. It is. That's. I, I will say that that's probably the most stressful job I've ever had in my life. And so as I get older, I don't do as many games anymore. And it's it's not because I can't do it or whatever, but... You know, I'll do it for the extra money here and there. To, for, for example, I don't do football anymore. And football is my favorite, but I take the boys to all the football games, so I don't do the games. But I'll work basketball to earn the money to pay for the football tickets. Sure. But at the same time, I'm like, every game I go to, do I really want to do this tonight? No, I don't want to be here. And then I'll go home thinking, okay, thank God it's over. I mean, it's it's You don't very get to stressful. enjoy what you're having to work on. I probably, for a college basketball game, 40 minutes on a running clock, I probably get to watch two, three minutes of a game. And I don't there will be times I've gone home and my wife said, who won? Uh, Marshall, but I don't remember the score. And you won't. I mean, and then one of us says, did you see that dunk? Uh, no, because that was probably when I was writing something or looking at somebody else. So, yeah, you don't get to see a lot of the game. Wow. I used to think it was the greatest perspective in the world. You see 15 cameras and you see every shot imaginable. But then when you get into the game. Now, Stats Guy, yeah, you get to watch the game because you have to. Yeah. But when you're in the production truck and doing something else, you rely on everybody else. You say, "Hey, who's going to the foul line? Hey, who carried the ball?" You don't even get to see it. You don't get to see it. Somebody scores, you're already moving on to the scoring drive. You don't see the extra point. You hope it's good. You know, somebody else has got to tell you what happened. If it's blocked and it's run back, you go, "Oh crap!" You know what happened? And so, yeah, but it's it's a high paced. Um, you know, three and a half hour football game seems like it disappears in just a couple minutes. Sure. Do you have any closing thoughts or advice you might give people who are looking to step into a managerial position or possibly run their own company? Yeah, I, I would say a few things. One, shadow somebody. You know, watch somebody else and see how they manage. Two, don't be afraid to fail. And three, don't you ever think you know everything. Make sure that you're always able to, you know, have an open ear and you're willing to learn new stuff. Because every single employee you hire or every single business venture you go into is ultimately going to be different from the previous one. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you for talking to us today, Brian. It's been a pleasure. I hope everyone out there enjoyed the advice and you take it to heart. So, But for today, I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Have a great week.